Welcome to this Google audio presentation of The Man from UNCLE, The Doomsday Affair, by Harry Whittington. Volume 4, 3. DC-7 drones soothingly at 37,000 feet with churning thunderheads like a broken wall between the plain and the California mountains where bandits and tireless padres had marched above the dark and choppy bay where sea wolves once hove in from plundering to Shanghai, a fresh crew from the hills of the town between the bay and the ocean. Solo smiled wryly at the thought that San Francisco hadn't changed much. The violence and excitement were still down there and the gaudy lights and the impenetrable dark. He even remembered that during the war, when his outfit had been awaiting transport to Korea, the men had been futilely warned against the gin mills of Mason Street, the friendly natives who'd insist on buying drinks. Don't drink with your own brother if he's been in San Francisco longer than three years, and you haven't seen him in that time. And there was the theme song of the embittered sailors. I left my wallet in San Francisco, high upon some dark, windy alley. Solo put the thoughts of his past out of his mind. He knew San Francisco as an exciting town where pulses quickened and life took a new edge. Paris of the New World, an old cliché, but with all the truth of the tritest platitudes. He buckled his seat belt as the plane put down through the thick smoking of the clouds gliding upon the runway. He came off the plane with the forty other travel-must passengers trying to blend in with the crowd, despite his purpled eye and the strong premonition of deadly danger ahead. He returned the stewardess's warm smile and recalled his promise to call that number she'd printed for him on the inside of a matchbook folder, if he got five free minutes in town during the next three days. There was a scented perfection to her specifications, and he experienced a moment of regret because he knew in advance he would not have that five minutes. Solo glanced over his shoulder, and she waved to him from the plain exitway, and he knew with a faint sadness he would never see her again. He paused at the car rental desk and collected the keys for a Chevy convertible that had been reserved in his name. He saw a slender man in a gray suit lower a newspaper when he spoke his name at the desk, and straightened as the girl repeated it. The man folded his newspaper deliberately and with an unhurried stride went to the row of public phone booths and entered one, closing it behind him. He watched Solo narrowly as he crossed from the administration building to the parking area. Solo drove at 50 miles an hour in the suburban traffic on roads that sang wetly from the recent rain. The air was bracing. The flow of traffic was a challenge that alerted tired senses and the memory of the sudden rains that struck the Bay Area stirred more old memories. He left his keys with the doorman at the St. Francis Hotel, stood a moment listening to the luring call of the evening traffic, seeing the lights and the elegantly dressed women. He checked into the room that had been reserved for him. He prowled it a moment, anxious to be out of it and on his way, as if he were a hunter with a scent of prey nagging at him. In the street again, he rejected the idea of getting out of the car. A man stalked these hills, hearing the rattle of the cable cars, 
seeing the streets forking out like spokes from a hub, drinking in the excitement of the strange race of inhabitants of this place. Night in San Francisco. Solo heaved a deep sigh and strode faster, going down Market Street toward the Embarcadero. He paused on the walk, aware of people passing him on both sides, the clatter of sounds, the winking of the lights in purple and orange neon, which said, The Hungry Pussycat, up three flights. He walked up those three flights and entered the padded doors. The hysterical clatter of sound washed out around him. He saw the bored faces of male and female lined up like crows along the padded bar, the disenchanted bartenders moving behind it, the dark mirrors, the damp smell of liquor. Music was loud with that muffled tone of poor acoustics. The small dance space was crowded, and here and there were military uniforms to remind one that the Cold War was still there and that this frantic city was still a port on the Pacific. He ordered a cutty sark scotch and ice at the bar and then turned with it in his hand toward the place where the largest crowd was knotted. He would have been more than mildly astonished to see that this was a goldfish pool if Heather McNabb had not briefed him so thoroughly at Uncle Headquarters less than nine hours ago. There she is, swimming down there. Looks like one of the goldfish, doesn't she? Except the goldfish are up here and she's in a tank in the basement. You've got to be kidding. You don't think she's really swimming around there naked with the goldfish, do you? So what's with being naked? She's no bigger than one of the goldfish, a woman said. Honey, she looks better like that than a lot of us do. How do they do that? Make it look like she's swimming around with the goldfish. Honey, it's all done with mirrors. You know what's wrong with life? Everything is done with mirrors. Barbary Coast, that's what she calls herself. Look at her. I wonder what her real name is. Solo turned away from the fish pond, wondering if there would be any glamour left if they knew as he did that the news from his real name was Esther Kampmeyer. Esther Kampmeyer? Sure, that's my name. But what does that prove? She stared at Solo from the fluffy concealment of a terry cloth robe. Proves you're the one we've been looking for, Solo said, leaning back in the only chair in her closet-sized dressing room in the building basement. What do you want with me? She scrubbed at her dark, waverish hair with a bright red towel. He knew from his mirrored view of her that she was a thoughtfully designed young woman and he saw that nothing improved her looks as much as being near her. And he saw something else. She was a frightened young female. Her dark violet eyes were haunted with something she never talked about, probably tried never even to think about, the kind of fear that one never escaped, no matter how fast she ran or how often she changed her name. I never date customers, mister, she said. Solo gave her a smile that he hoped would reassure her. I'm afraid my business with you is more serious than the pleasant prospect of a date. Do you know a girl named Ursula Baines? Her eyes widened and her body tensed beneath the robe. She swallowed hard and tilted her chin. What about her? Ursula Baines and Candy Kane, a dance act employing a silver whip, 
played a lot of the larger clubs, and before it broke up, it seemed to concentrate on the areas near sensitive military or missile centers. We used to have an act together. What about it? And we used to use the silver whips. It's not what we want, mister. It's what the public will buy. I'm not here to censure you. I thought maybe you might be willing to talk to me about Ursula. She batted her head at the heel of her hand, saying, I'm waterlogged. She appeared to be busy getting her body dried and warm. But Solo had seen these signs before. She was attempting to cover up how upset she was, how nervous she'd become since he'd mentioned Ursula. He said, She's dead. You know that, don't you? She nodded. What else do you want to tell me, Mr. What's your name? Solo? Well, that's about as believable as Barbary Coast. How well did you know her? Barbary Coast tossed her head. Look, I don't want to talk about her. She's dead. What can it help to talk about her now? You're not afraid that what happened to her might happen to you? He saw her wince. He saw the way she shivered beneath the robe. But she forced a laugh. Why should it? I don't know. Why should it have happened to her? I told you, I don't want to talk about it. Maybe Ursula got mixed up in something that was bad news. In her way, she was a kook. I don't know what it is you want to hear from me. I don't even want to know, because what happened to Ursula could happen to me. Is that what you're afraid of, Barbary? She tried to laugh. Who's afraid? I always shake like this. The water's cold. If you trust me, you'll answer some questions the best you know. I can protect you. She shivered, her violet eyes fixed on his. Her chin tilted slightly. You know what? Those are probably the exact words you said to Ursula. Solo didn't speak. After a moment, Barbary said, I'll tell you this much. If the man who ordered Ursula's death decides to kill me, no one's going to protect me. Solo stood up. He crossed the narrow space to where the girl stood, looking small and helpless, wrapped in a thick robe. You do know the man, though, don't you? I don't know anything. Is that why you're scared to breathe? It's nothing to you. That's where you're wrong, Barbary. This is a serious business. Deadly. We don't even know yet how bad it is. Only that the plot is urgent enough to have involved a personal advisor to the president of this country. What does that have to do with me? I'm just trying to make a buck and stay alive. A lot of other people want to stay alive too, Barbary. Their lives may depend on what you can tell me, if you will. Why do you think I know anything? Her voice rose, and she shook her head wildly. He saw the shadows of hysteria swirling in the depths of her violet eyes. You know the man who killed Ursula, who ordered her death. No, I don't. You know him, and you know why he wanted Ursula killed. And you lived in terror since the moment you heard she was dead. Leave me alone. Her voice lifted, shaking. Solo caught her arms, gripping her gently and yet firmly, her lips quivering, the hysteria building in her. She tried to break free, but she couldn't. She burst into tears, crying suddenly and hurting sobs. Please, just let me alone. Sorry, I can't do that. 
and I don't believe you want me to. You, you're crazy! She screamed at him. I never saw you before you walked in here. I've never heard of you. That's the way I want to keep it. No, you don't know me, but you know inside that I'm trying to fight whoever it was that killed Ursula. And you know that whatever chance you have of staying alive depends on your working with me, helping me. Maybe the odds against you are bad. I tried to help Ursula. I couldn't. But I'll try to help you. And you know that your chances are better with me than without me. She shook her head, mouth trembling, body shaking. No, I'm afraid. I just want to stay alive. That's all I want. I haven't seen Ursula. Not for years. That's the truth. What can I know? Don't drag me into this. Please, don't. Am I dragging you into it, Barbary? You knew Ursula was frightened, and I believe you know why. Ursula's death was decided a long time ago, before she arranged to meet me in Hawaii. The girl sobbed openly now, almost in mindless hysteria. She repeated over and over again, I'm so afraid, I'm so afraid. Why, Barbary? Why? No, I don't know. Leave me alone. Solo sighed and dropped his hands to his side. Okay, if I do let you alone, Barbary, what then? I'll be all right. She pressed her trembling hands over her face. No, when you walked in here and saw me in that chair, you almost fainted. Why? Because you were afraid I had come from... From whom, Barbary? From the guy who killed Ursula? No. No, I don't want to talk about it. You know something else, too, Barbary. If you even suspect the identity of the man who sentenced Ursula to death, you must realize that you, too, are in the same danger she was. You gotta have help to stay alive. I can walk out, or I can stay here. It's up to you. Either way, you've got to face it, alone or with whatever help I'm able to give you. There's a big organization behind me, Barbary. I could offer you whatever power they possess to help you. I'm so alone. I'm so afraid. You've been alone and you've been afraid ever since Ursula died. Doesn't have to be that way anymore. Barbary straightened slightly. What can I do? Solo sighed. I want whatever information you have on Ursula. You won't be adding anything by telling me that she was a spy that worked for Thrush. We know that. We know she was trying to break away. That's why she was killed. What we need are the people she worked with in the immediate past inside Thrush. Anything you know about them. Any of them. Maybe you even know the reason why she wanted to quit the conspiracy. Whatever you tell me, I promise I will keep in strictest confidence. But it might be the key that will open up this whole affair. Barbary coasted immobile and stared up at him for some seconds. He saw she was looking at him for the first time. She had become, until this moment, so wrapped up in the ball of fear her life had become, she was incapable of turning her attention outside her own confused, terrorized mind. Her face was rigid, pallid. She walked away from him, moving woodenly, her thoughts spinning. She appeared hardly aware of what she was doing. She went behind a screen, dropped the robe, and dressed 
in that same abstracted way. At last she said, I don't know why I trust you. Maybe, like you say, I've got no choice. I've got you or nobody. Ursula trusted you and she died. But maybe at least she wasn't alone when it happened. Maybe the way things are with me right now, that's all that really matters. Barbary Coe sat across the white linen-covered table in her restaurant booth. She turned the daiquiri slowly in her fingers. You're right. I am scared. I've been out of my mind since Ursula was killed. It's like I've been sitting around waiting for them to just come for me. I knew they'd find me sometime. I changed my name. I changed my act. I changed everything about me. And all the time, I knew it wasn't any good. I got to you first. You're going to be fine. She drew little comfort from this reassurance. She'd lived too long with her desperate terror to have it easily allayed. It's not much of a life being a goldfish in a San Francisco night joint, but it's all the action they gave me, and I'm stuck with it. And I'm honest enough to tell you, I'm scared to die. Do you know how Ursula got mixed up with Thrush in the first place? She went silent for some seconds. At last, she looked up. We were doing this act. We were free and dating a lot. We didn't even realize that most of our dates were with military men. They were alone, had money, and were looking for fun. We just got together. Then this guy came along, this Chinese-American guy. Ugly. I mean, I've met some ugly men who were nicer than the handsome ones, but not him. He told us what a high percentage of our dates were with men involved in top-secret military and missile matters. He said he could get us booked into some fine clubs near those missile and military centers, and then we could make more money than we'd ever dreamed of making simply by repeating to his men anything that our dates said to us. I didn't want to do it, and I told him those men never talked about secret matters. But Ursula laughed, and he knew better anyway. He said all men boasted when they drank too much, especially with women. Ursula went for it right from the first. She warned me I might get into trouble unless I agreed. When this man came back for our answer, we both said we'd agree to the deal. But he said he only wanted to hire Ursula. The reason, well, he said he would contact me later. I got ill then, seeing that Ursula had joined the man's organization. Suddenly we got a completely new set of bookings. But I was too nervous. I was getting ulcers worrying about Ursula and what was going to happen to us. We broke up the act, and she went on to working for them. I tried to change my name and lose them. I was afraid even then. Once, Ursula and I met accidentally. For a little while, she was thin and pale and nervous, tense, terrified. She wanted out but didn't know how to get free and stay alive. We had a silly code made up with hip words, and I wrote to Ursula in our secret code begging her to make a break and get away, turn herself into the CIA, the government, anybody who could help her. Solo handed her the letter he'd found along with a silver whip at Ursula's suitcase. Is this the letter? Barbary smiled warmly. Yeah, that's it. It's just a jumble of zero cool words. 
The only way you could understand it is if you know what the other person is talking about, Ursula knew. I never heard from her again. After I wrote her, I got frightened. Again. I dyed my hair. Again. I left Chicago suddenly and turned up out here with my new act and my new name. But I knew they'd find me. They can find anybody they want to find. Who is they? The Chinese-American that originally approached you and Ursula? Yeah, him. And the rest of them. But him mostly. He'll find me if he wants. Could you make it easy for him? What? She shook her head, eyes dilating. I want you to let him find you. We need you to bring him out so we can trap him. She shook her head. She stared at him, her face milk-white, eyes empty. Her lips moved, but she did not speak. He leapt up, going around the table, because she had fainted suddenly, face striking hard and straight down. 4. Ilya awoke and found himself lying curled upon a red and brown Mexican rug. He shivered and opened his eyes. Remembering the injection given to him by Sam Su Yan, he was astonished to find his mind clear. Ah, he awakes, ah, giddy pig. He heard Sam's voice somewhere above him. He turned his head, but the light pained his eyes, and suddenly his whole body twitched. He tried to speak, but the words were garbled, meaningless, and his tongue felt thick in his mouth. He heard Sam's amused chuckle mixed with something new, a woman's contemptuous laugh. He tried to turn again, but every time he tried, his body reacted in violent and disjointed spasms. He stared up at Sam, standing like a bony vulture above him. Yes, Sam was pleased. We are getting about the same reactions from our human guinea pig that we elicited from our other animals in the lab. Your mind is quite clear, though, is it? His smile was sour. No sense in your trying to say yes or no. It won't come out that way. The only sounds you can make are those mindless grunts, like an idiot, the spastic, a victim of a stroke or brain damage. Go on, try to get up. Come on, get on your feet. Ilya turned his body, aware of the tremors that went through him. When he ordered his arms to support him, his legs bent or straightened or simply trembled while his arms flew in wild, useless motions. Sam and the woman laughed again. She moved closer now, in lime-green shift, high heels, hair a golden red. Elias saw her as the kind of new discovery he wouldn't want to introduce to the boys. Sam Suyan noticed Elias rapt staring at the woman he laughed. I'm afraid women will be of little use to you in your condition right now, my friend. Unless you enjoy tormenting your mind by seeing what you cannot touch. This is Miss Violet Wilde, Kuryakin. I'm sorry I cannot remain here any longer to enjoy the side effects of my revenge upon you. More urgent matters demand my immediate attention. I'm sure you'll forgive me. Miss Wilde will see you safely put away. Elia struggled frantically on the floor, managing to get to his knees before he was attacked by a sudden fit of violent trembling. 
and sprawled out face down upon the carpeting. He lay there, still watching Sue Yan and Violet Wilde leave the room. He stayed face down, panting against the carpeting, his body dissociated from the messages of his mind. It was as if the drug had scrambled his nerve connections. Every order from his mind only seemed to confuse and aggravate his nerves and muscular controls. Lying there, he felt the pressure of his shoulder holster, of his gun. They were so sure of themselves, they had not even bothered to disarm him. Painfully, and after many false starts and falls and wild muscular spasms in his legs and arms, Elia fell over onto his back. Exhausted, he lay for a moment before he attempted any other movements. Then, his forehead, sweat-beaded, he ordered his right hand to reach for the gun in his holster. His left arm trembled and waved in a wild arc, but when it fell, it landed on the holster, although there seemed little sense in the feeling of his fingers. He could see his hand lying on the holster. He bit his lip, sweated, afraid that his arm might suddenly fly away from the holster in another spasm. Closing his eyes tightly, he ordered his right hand to close on the holster, to cling tightly. His left hand closed on the holster, but his arm quivered all the way to his shoulder. Afraid even to compliment himself upon this small success, Elia forced his hand to inch upward toward the gun butt. His shirt was sweat damp, his eyes burning with perspiration by the time he forced his quivering, fatigue-aching hand to close on the gun butt. He said the words over and over in his mind, Draw. Draw the gun. Draw the damn gun. Draw. Suddenly his left arm moved, yanking the gun from its holster. Then it swung in wide arcs, gyrating, shaking, no matter how his mind screamed at it to lie still. The fingers loosed and he watched the gun sail halfway across the room and go sliding under the bed. He sagged back on the carpeting, too tired to care. His left arm continued to tremble. He managed to turn his head and saw his luggage had been brought into this room and stood with two green lightweight lady weekenders. He remembered Su Yan's words, Miss Wilde will see you put safely away. He breathed heavily, going over in his mind the implications of this mild statement. His mind remained clear, but he made the noises of a cretin idiot, and his movements were those of one who suffered from epilepsy or some crippling stroke or brain damage at birth. He could not even control any of his movements. Miss Wilde will see you safely put away. Put away where? He managed to search the room by flailing about, lifting his head only to have it fall back hard upon the floor. He was alone. They were certain he wasn't going anywhere. He managed to curl his right arm upward and allow it to fall across his shirt pocket and the ballpoint pen clipped there. Minutes later, he had closed it in his fist and his shaking thumb had pressed down, releasing its point. Holding the pen as if his life depended upon it, he rolled across the room to the small desk. Quivering, his body jerking in strange, uncoordinated spasms, he pulled himself to his knees. He reached out and pulled the small stack of hotel stationery toward him. The papers fluttered out about him, 
and he sprawled out, holding the pen in his fist. He closed his eyes as tightly as he could after setting his shaking fist at the top left-hand corner of the sheet of white paper. He gripped the pen with all his strength, even though this caused the rest of his body to react in paroxysms. He took his time. He knew he could not hope to do more than print his given name and the word help. Even this small thing pushed out of the balcony would be enough to alert the other uncle agents in the immediate vicinity. He exhaled at last and dropped his head upon his arms. He cried out his success in wild laughter, recoiling from the unnatural sounds pouring from his mouth. He didn't care. It was laughter. It was triumph. It was mind over convulsive muscle. He lifted his head, staring at the short distance to the double door standing open to the balcony. He had only to grip the paper, roll over there, and let the wind catch it. Miss Wilde will see you safely put away. Maybe she would, Sam. He finally was able to force his fist open and let the pen drop to the floor. Then he turned his attention, closing either of his hands on the paper on which he had written, Elia, help. He stared at the paper upon which he had written so agonizingly. The sound that burst from his mouth was a sob of agony. It sounded like one. He cried out violently, helplessly. The words his mind had struggled so long to form were not words at all. There was nothing on the paper except the meaningless scribbling of a three-year-old child. 5. Solo moved the spirits of ammonia under Barbary's nose. No, she set up protesting pushing the small bottle away from her nostrils. Are you all right? A slight shudder coursed through her at the sound of Solo's voice. Obviously, it brought back abruptly the reason why she had fainted. How did I get here? She opened her eyes, staring about her in alarm. There's nothing to be afraid of. Let me decide that. Her voice quavered. You're all right, Barbary. You fainted in the restaurant. I didn't want to attract too much attention to us, so a waiter and I walked you out to a taxi, and I brought you here. She met his gaze. Yes, you brought me here. But where is here? You're all right. You're in my room at the St. Francis Hotel. Well, you're a sneaky worker, aren't you? Solo smiled wryly. Under other circumstances, I'd most definitely be using all my wiles on you, Barbary. But right now I'm trying to help you, whether you believe me or not. Right now I'm not so sure. He grinned at her. I had a cup of coffee sent up. You'll feel a lot better. He poured a cup from the glittering silver service. She took the small china cup, sipping at it, relaxing slightly. Why did you bring me here, Solo? What would you do with a woman who fainted in a public place? He sipped at his coffee. The steam rose between them. I promise to protect you. I can do it better when you're where I can watch you. That's all off, Solo. He set his cup down, watching her narrowly. What are you talking about? The agreement you and I made. I meant to keep it, but you've already broken your part of it. He frowned. 
You want to explain what you mean by that? It's simple. I told you I was scared half out of my mind. You said if I told you what I knew about Ursula and the time she worked as a spy with Thrush, you'd try to help me stay alive. And I do promise that. No, you said that. But then, the next thing you wanted was to use me as bait to lure a man into a trap. He's the man I'm more afraid of than I am of the devil. Talking about him is one thing. Putting myself where I know he can get at me? I don't want any part of that. I mean, Solo, I'm dead afraid, and I'm not going to get involved. But you are involved. Am I? Really? Then I'm not going to get involved any more. He stood up. He looked down at her. I don't blame you for being afraid. I wouldn't think much of you if you didn't have enough sense to be scared. Oh, I've got a lot of sense. I'm scared to death. Sorry, Solo. Flattery isn't going to do it either. He smiled. All right, maybe the truth will. And the unvarnished truth it'll be. Barbary, you are involved. I assure you that you are. If only because you were approached by Thrush. That means they know about you. Whatever it is they plan to do now, they may be afraid to trust you. You said for some reason they turned you down. You didn't tell me what it was, though. He saw a shadow flicker across her dark eyes. She drew a deep breath. I don't want to talk about it. The reason. Why? Because it doesn't have anything to do with this. He shrugged. That's up to you, Barbary. Everything you tell me to help may aid in saving your life. But what you want to tell me, and what you don't want to tell me, well, that's up to you. But there are more reasons why you're in danger from Thrush. You wrote Ursula a letter, and even if it was in hip jargon, only the two you understood, it would be enough to make Thrush suspicious of you. And the very fact that you stayed with Ursula for some weeks after she started working for Thrush may mean that you, even unwittingly, met or heard from Ursula about a man that we know only by the code name, Tixie Ilno. You may have seen him, or you may know him well enough for your life to be forfeit, because he'll be afraid to let you live at this critical time in his plans. You know how to break a gal up, don't you? It's the truth doing that, Barbary. I'm not telling you anything you haven't already told yourself these past months. After a moment, she shook her head. No, I guess not. And then there's the matter of this Chinese-American who approached you and Ursula in the first place. For all we know, he may be Tixie Ilno. No matter who he is, he's part of this immediate business that they're engaged in, and they don't want people like you around spoiling it for them. He loves secrecy. He even had himself declared dead in a plane crash two years ago in order to make it all easier for him. You think he was going to let a doll he was afraid to trust as a spy stay alive long enough to trip him up? I can tell you he won't. The stakes are too high. She shuddered, covering her face with her hands. Her body shook. Solo saw that she was numb with fear. We've got to stop him, Barbary. You understand? And the only way we can do that is... The telephone rang, breaking across his words, stopping him cold. He glanced toward the instrument, frowning. He reached out, lifted the receiver, and placed it to his ear. Solo speaking. The voice was that of a woman. The words were in the code of his department and the United Network Command. 
There was no doubting their authenticity or meaning. Acknowledged, he said. Do you understand clearly? The voice inquired. Yes, thank you. The phone went dead in his hand. He turned, finding Barbary Coast crouching on his bed, watching him, eyes stark and wide. I have to go out, he said, at once. Will you wait here for me? Her voice was flat. You think they won't find me here? You'll be safe here, as long as you follow my orders. Safe when used as directed, she said in a dulled tone, devoid of hope. Just stay in here. Keep the door locked, the latch on. When I come back, I'll knock three times. Before you unlock the door, ask my name. Don't unlatch or unlock that door for any reason, unless you hear three knocks and then hear my name. She nodded and sank down onto the bed. He glanced at her, seeing she had no hope. She wanted to trust him, but she knew too much about Thrush, and she no longer trusted anything.